Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Reading today is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. Text is on screen. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, church, as usual, children are dis dismissed for Children's Church. Go ahead and pick them up right before or right after you take communion. If you are new to Trinity, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church, and you are jumping into a sermon series called Christian Practices, and we are looking at the five practices of our church that we focus on in order to form us into the way of Christ and the way of his love. Uh, we've already looked at a handful of practices, the practice of worship and gospel witness, and last week was the practice of Christian fellowship. Today we're going to look at the practice of service, and then next week we are going to look at stewardship. Now service is the practice where we pursue justice and mercy both locally and globally. And there's a bunch of different people that kind of influence uh, some of this uh, sermon, some works by Timothy Keller, a popular pastor out in New York City, uh, another uh, professor who writes a lot on justice, Michael Sadell, and then we also have a, a, another book called When Helping Hurts that's been a really, really great help in a topic like that, and I'll be citing some of these resources throughout the, the sermon. But today we're focusing on our practice of service, and the thing I've been encouraging you all to do each week is to go through these weekly rhythms where you come here and you learn about a practice at the Sunday gathering, and then I'm encouraging you to commit to a rule, a rule of life. It's a phrase from church history that essentially means that you commit to a practical habit where you're carrying out the way of Jesus. Uh, so you're looking at a practice, kind of a broader category, and so I'm encouraging you to get specific with committing to a unique rule of life, and then going through this week and other weeks, practicing that rule, and then I have the community group ministry, they're discussing this together, sharing how that rule is going, how the practice is going, the successes, the failures, the whole thing, and if you are not part of a community group ministry, of course, being able to do that through friendships and relationships here at Trinity, I encourage you to do that as well. So let's go ahead and dive into this practice of service. Let me go ahead and pray first, and we'll get to it. Let's pray. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for the people here that are pursuing you, life in your Son, and following the, the wisdom and the help of the Holy Spirit in their daily life. God, you are active in the lives of the people here, even those that might be skeptics, even those that don't have faith, Lord. You're working in such a way that they're asking questions and they're in a place like this trying to figure some things out. So I pray, Lord, as we uh, see another practice, a way to grow in your love and service to the world, I pray that we would do so motivated by the gospel of grace uh, to remain in your love throughout our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you ever hear of someone receiving a severe punishment, it's really common to ask, what did they do? What did they do to deserve such a thing? Uh, for example, if a classmate is suspended or expelled from school or a coworker is fired and asked to clear out immediately, it might raise some questions, one of them being, what did he or she do to deserve that? A similar thing can be done if you read descriptions of God's judgment in uh, the Bible. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament book of Amos. Uh, let me just describe through the words of Amos what has happened through God's judgment on his people. This is Amos 5, 18 through 20. It says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear, as though, and though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? What a vivid description of God's judgment. Here, the day of the Lord, and often when God's people have heard about the day of the Lord, they think about God returning as judge, and he's going to judge the unrighteous and uh, set his people free. And so if you're part of Israel, if you're part of God's people, the day of the Lord is a great thing. They're looking forward to it. It's a day of light. But here Amos is saying, no, even for you, it's not going to be a day of light. It is going to be a terrible day, including for God's people. And it, and it has this vivid description of God's judgment, how you cannot escape this judgment. It's not only a, a dark day, but did you notice that language about how a person can't escape the coming Judgment. It describes a person who gets away from a lion and a bear only make it safe back to his house to be bit by a poisonous snake. Can you imagine that happening to you? I know we don't have some of those critters around here, but you go on a hike, you escape a wolf and a bear, only to get back to your house, to your cabin, and you still die from a poisonous bite in your home. Like, that's a bad day right? That's a really bad day. But that's how the, the day of the Lord is described in this way, that if he and his judgment is coming after you, you will not get away. It will come for you, and you will be judged. The next verses, after ones I just read, describes how much God hates their worship and despises what they do when they get together. And again, it raises the question, what did they do to deserve God's judgment in this way? Amos 5.24 gives us a hint. He says, rather than this despicable worship, he says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is probably the most popular, book, uh, popular verse rather in the book of Amos. It's picturing justice rolling like a life-giving river in a dry land, and God's desire is for his people to devote themselves to the work of justice in every area of life, and those people have not been doing that. It's been absent from their work. 
And so Amos highlights the different ways that this has been happening, this injustice in God's people. He highlights the oppression of the poor by the powerful, burdensome taxes, low wages, growing in wealth on the backs of others, unequal treatment of others in court, and on and on and on it goes. And Amos even finds some really creative ways and shocking ways to highlight the injustice that's present among God's people. In, his, uh, in the last verse in chapter 3, going into chapter 4, Amos says this, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husband, bring me some drinks. So this is a picture of God's people enjoying the good life at the expense of others. They have lakefront vacation home that God despises and wants to tear them down. And then you have one of the most creative digs in the Old Testament, if you were paying attention. And to really appreciate this dig, you have to know something about Bashan, because he just called the women of Israel the cows of Bashan. And so you need to know, like, what does that mean? Like, why is that offensive? And it wasn't meant to be offensive. Bashan would be like an area in uh, ancient Israel that would be like the Great Plains of America. Nice, flat pastures and large, well-fed, grass-fed cows just roaming about. And so that was the image that would have came to mind when they were called cows of Bashan. Very offensive, right? Very, and that was, it was meant to be that. And the point here in Amos is not that it's just women who are in Israel that are doing these unjust things. The whole verse that's being painted there, those couple verses, is that it's the men too. Everybody is comprehensively included in this practice of injustice when they should be serving and pursuing justice in their land. God's people are called to do justice and love mercy. And the way we describe this practice at Trinity is with the word service. Service is the way we pursue justice and mercy both locally and globally. And I understand that the word justice is a loaded word nowadays. If you invite 10 people into a room and ask them to define justice, you will get 10 different definitions. And that's one of the challenges in even preaching a sermon like this. So this sermon will highlight the practice of service at Trinity City Church and also that expression through the pursuit of justice and mercy. But I want to show you and define it in a distinctively Christian way and then also show some practical ways that can happen in the life of this church. So let's get into how we understand these categories of love and service and justice. Let's start with love. This practice of service is grounded in love, and that was why we chose the, the Old Testament reading for today, that the greatest commandment is to love God and love neighbor. And if you've never read the Old Testament context for where love neighbor as yourself shows up, you miss how specific it is before it even gets to that command. If you were paying attention to the scripture reading, you would have learned that love your neighbor as yourself means, for ancient Israel, leave, leave produce from the harvest for the poor. That is, provide for the basic needs of others out of your own work in abundance. It went on to say, don't insult those who are physically disadvantaged. Don't steal from your neighbor by lying or deceiving or in robbery or delaying wages to an employee. 
says don't pervert justice in the courts by giving false testimonies or showing partiality or favoritism. It says don't keep hating, don't keep hate in your heart for your neighbor, but then it also balances that. Don't hate your neighbor, don't seek vengeance on your neighbor, but also confront your neighbor if they need to be confronted. If you have something against your neighbor, your neighbor is doing something reckless, confront them. You know how many native Minnesotans are condemned by that command with their passive-aggressive way of just keeping things to themselves? And then once you hear this list of things to do, then you finally get to Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The point is, as maybe a modern person would think, to love uh, to love others, uh, or to learn to love yourself and to love others. The point is really to take care of your others because you naturally take care of yourself. Or the way that Jesus says it in Matthew seven twelve, he says, this, "In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you." For this sums up the law and the prophets. And in fact, in the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus clarifies that neighbor here means not just somebody that you know or somebody that you live by. It includes those you don't know and that you typically don't hang around as well. And so love of neighbor includes these practical ways of serving other people in justice and mercy. So service is the word that we use in our practice that we connect with the pursuit of justice and mercy. And at the Last Supper, the followers of Jesus are debating. This is where, like an example where the word service comes from. So there's the Last Supper. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to die. And they're having the meal together. And the disciples of Jesus are debating who's the greatest. Who's going to get the best spot in the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells them, rebukes them, says that way of thinking... That's how the world thinks. That's how people who don't know God think about these things. And then in Luke 22, he says, But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." Jesus is the greatest one at this table. Yet what is he doing? He's the one, even though that he's the Lord, he's the Messiah, he's the Word of God who put on flesh, he is the one who is objectively greater than anybody else in that room and the world, but he is the one who is serving. And that's why he teaches his disciples and followers to this day to do the same. The word for service also comes up in the early church in Acts 6, when the situation happens in the early church where widows are being overlooked during food distribution that was happening. And these overwhelmed elders at the time, the elders of the church, who are in charge of ministry of the word and prayer, choose new leaders, that, and it says, describes them as full of the spirit and wisdom, and their task is to serve the church in this very specific way, to serve these widows and making sure that they're taken care of. And this story is understood in church history as to give rise to the office of deacon. And if you ever never knew, that word deacon has its root in the Greek word for service. And deacons may be recognized leaders in the church who serve the congregation in specific ways, but the point here is that service is a practice of every Christian, and all Christians are called to the practice of service. 
Now we get to some of these categories of justice and mercy and righteousness. And again, as I said in the, the opening, our understanding of justice is probably pretty diverse and not necessarily informed by the framework of Scripture. Uh, the book I already mentioned, Michael Sadell wrote a book on justice, and he lays out three dominant views of justice. One view of justice says that the goal of justice is to maximize welfare, that justice is doing the most good for the most people. Other people understand justice as respecting freedom and rights. This can be expressed by allowing individuals to have freedom to live as the way they want, or another expression of this understanding of justice is creating more equality through equal opportunities. Others yet define justice as promoting virtue. Justice is living the way one ought to live in accordance with objective morality and virtue. And these categories might be familiar to you. Maybe one of those categories is kind of where you live in your understanding of justice. But when you start to read and study the, the biblical framework for a word like justice, you see that there's some overlap with these more secular understandings, but it's also very distinct from them in such a way that it actually doesn't fit into any of these categories, although it might share some affirmations, because there's also some foundational ways that biblical justice does not agree with any of these views. For example, the Christian faith certainly works for the common good. However, if the common good still has a, a way that it's expressed that a few people are still getting the short end, that a few people are still oppressed, then the Christian life would say, still say that it's objectively unjust, even though most people benefit from it. The Christian faith also agrees that each person has freedom and rights. However, we emphasize that the source of human freedom, rights, and dignity is something that comes from God because we bear his image. And we disagree that, uh, that individuals or human institutions determine what they are. Who we are is something that comes from God and God alone. We don't get to determine our value or the value of the other. God has already bared his image on us. The Christian faith also agrees that justice is a virtuous and objective endeavor. However, we would say that this, the objectiveness of justice is a, has God as his source. Things are just or right and wrong because God has determined it to be so, and it's in sync with the character of God, and that's the source of justice. Uh, Tim Keller, as I mentioned, has write, written a lot about this uh, category and framework of justice. And he would, just to summarize some of his writings here, justice, according to Scripture, is the reflection of God's character where we both correct injustices but also treat all people with equity. That's fairness. So it has a positive expression and a negative expression. Justice is experienced when we experience, for example, protection and care and peace among all people, and especially when this is applied to migrants and widows so that, and, and other types of uh, categories like that, because then they don't have to worry about people taking advantage of them. Justice means that they're safe. But then there's the negative expression, that justice means confronting and punishing unrighteousness, injustice, and evil. It's when those who do wrong are punished, uh, even if they hold power and influence over others. That's what justice is in the scriptures, and God is the source of this justice and reflects that because that's his very 
character. There's another word in the scriptures called uh, righteousness that, that is also getting at this framework. Righteousness is more of the social part of justice. It's talking about right relationships where we affirm the image of God and every person and treat them with respect regardless of social differences. And then there's mercy, which is the heart part, the motivation for justice comes from the unconditional grace of God that forms people who have compassion on one another. And I remember even in the book of Amos, like one of the other foundational things that's often missing, even sometimes in the church, in Christians' understanding of justice and injustice, is how injustice is often fueled by idolatry. Amos makes a big deal that false understandings of God and false worship is the source of injustice in order to correct God's people and to have a more just community and society, the right worship of God and the right view of God and his glory is foundational to that change. So you do not have a biblical framework of justice, for example, if, if those types of, of, of theology of worship and idolatry and so on isn't a part of that. So that's what we mean by the practice of service where we pursue, pursue justice and mercy together. So how does this look in the life of our church? How do we help one another? And to continue on a framework that's offered by Keller, some of the ways to think about uh, helping others and serving others is you can do so through relief, development, and reform. Relief, development, and reform. Relief, defined by Keller, is giving direct aid to meet physical, material, and social needs. Development is bringing a person or community to self-sufficiency, and reform moves beyond the relief of immediate needs and dependency and seeks to change the social conditions and structures that aggravate or cause dependency. So that's how to think about like how to help, and it's just like, well, how do you help? Which, which level of help are we talking about? Because all three are needed in order to push back injustices and promote justice and mercy. Relief, for example, would be something like uh, crisis intervention or providing immediate aid after, after something that has devastated a person or community. Development, for example, would be seeking access of communities to things like finances and education, legal assistance and job. And reform is one of those categories you need to face something that's really big in scope, like going overseas and seeing like a caste system or tribalism or in our own day, in our own land, uh, the, the systemic issues of racism and, and the, the issues that give rise to abortion, like these things, uh, entail more than just relief and development. Reform also is something that needs to happen. So I want you to have those three categories because now I want to show you what does that look like in the life of our church? How do we participate in relief, development, and reform? Uh, one of the ways to look at relief is our church helps with relief and development within the congregation. We want to practice Acts 4.32, which says, All believers were in one heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully outworked in all of them that they were no needy persons among them. For, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need." 
within the life of the church relief and helping people develop the framework to uh, get out of some of the situations they may face is a healthy and good thing. I want to give you an example of how that looked in the life of the church by going way, way, way back to the fall of 2019 when I was diagnosed with a form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell, very aggressive form of lymphoma that I had to start treatment immediately. And I was just thinking about how the framework of a church, how the community and the connectedness of a church just helped out so much in my specific time of need. You see, when you're part of a church, you get core relationships deep fellowship, as we mentioned last week, with brothers and sisters in Christ that you invest in. And I've had decades of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ here, and they included people that were, I call them builders or firefighters. The firefighters came and they helped put out some fires right away, but then there were some other people that they were the ones that stick around a little bit more after the fire has been put out. I was also still part, and I still am today, part of community group and ministry teams and that ongoing rhythm of being able to gather with a small group of people each week, brothers and sisters in Christ and the community group ministry or serve on ministry teams with others provided an amazing source of support in that time. We also have created over the years uh, something called the care ministry within the deacon ministry where they help very specific ways that uh, brothers and sisters in a congregation like this might face some very specific things and they can provide funding and help and support and resources. And they did that with me. One of the things that happened during that time when you make an announcement like that public is a lot of people want to help their pastor. And it was overwhelming at times. And one of the things that the care team did is said, hey, we will take on those emails. We'll take on those requests. We'll kind of filter it out and mobilize people that want to help. And also the other, the other thing it helped do is it kind of absorbs the, um, like, I want to help, but it's actually not very helpful types of suggestions that happen. Because sometimes you get people with wild ideas when you face some illness like this. They're like, did you know that if you put goat ear in behind your ear, it cures cancer, right? And so you get crazy things like that where people mean well, but that's not very helpful comments, right? When somebody's facing something like that. And so the care team was able to absorb that and absorb those that wanted to help. I had my own pastoral care through spiritual fathers and mentors in my life. And then, of course, people uh, pointed me to very specific care in the form of a medical team. That's available not just to somebody like me, but everybody here that faces difficulties and needs the body of Christ to serve them. Another way that we applied these categories of relief, development, and reform is that our local church partners with ministries and community organizations to help with local and global development and to provide relief to those outside of our church. One of the practical ways that looks is we have a benevolence fund and folks within the congregation have priority for their specific needs, but what often happens at the end of the year is that there's still uh, benevolence funding that is left and we then seek to use that funding to partner with other organizations that often focus, Christian organizations that often focus on areas of development. And really the idea behind this is that sometimes within a specific church, church leaders can be overwhelmed with how complex it is to do development in the areas of justice and mercy. So it's essential for us to have partnerships who specialize in these certain areas, that they're the experts, they have given their ministry and their life to these things and seek to send resources to them. 
Some examples from the 2022 year include uh, ministries that help reloc ref relocate refugees to Minnesota, help with food insecurity in St. Paul, give holistic care to families, even those with unwanted pregnancies, and to help underserved communities across the globe by financing local-led initiative and, businesses and business endeavors. So the third category is reform. And our church equips and encourages individuals to participate in reform. We recognize that reform is a key way to do this, but we don't necessarily lead from the pulpit in areas of reform because often that gets entangled into specific political parties and partisan politics where the church is a nonpartisan entity, a prophetic voice among a tribal and partisan uh, culture that only thinks about these things through their silos. So that's one of the reasons we don't avoid politics at Trinity, but we do talk about it. In fact, I think sometimes often politics is one of the main competing religions of our day that you have a donkey and an elephant competing with the Lamb of God, right? And one of the things I want to show is how the Christian faith is what trumps all those things by his grace and by his love, and that we want to equip people to participate within your own like, political framework and how you mobilize in, in very specific ways. Uh, so we're not asking you to vote one way or the other, but one of the ways that we try to help Christians participate in areas of reform, especially in political areas, is to be a prophet when you do this and not a puppet of a political party in order to pursue reform. Now that's some bigger ways that our church practices this idea of service, but we are all called, every one of us, to do this in very specific everyday ways as well, and that's uh, how I want to kind of close this part of the sermon is to just give some practical ways that could look for you. Service isn't just these corporate ways of doing it. It could help. It could look like helping somebody else to move, starting a relationship with someone who recently moved into your neighborhood and they're looking for a friend. It's inviting an international student into your house, um, and it's, it's inviting those outside of your typical social network over for dinner and acts of hospitality. These are examples of service. And currently, even here, if you're just looking for maybe something more specific, we have partnerships where if you want to serve international students or refugees that are coming to Minnesota or maybe participate in the service of adoption and fostering, we have ways of connecting you to those things uh, right now. One of the exciting things that happened during our annual meeting is we got to call uh, a new deacon, a deacon of uh, neighborhood ministry, Sarah Joy, you might remember her, she's been up here a lot. Uh, and one of the reasons we want to do that is because she's, she's very equipped to be able to give us more and more practical ways of serving our neighbor in very, very specific ways. Many of you have already benefited from some of the uh, seminars that she's done, and she'll be doing some more. She'll be looking to equip people for um, uh, being ambassadors in their neighborhood, and that's something else to look out for. If you're just looking for more practical ways to serve in the coming months, and, and hopefully the years ahead, we'll be able to build some training to help you do that. Now, I want to conclude uh, this sermon by making sure that you have a gospel framework for this practice of service. And I want to point to, there's an old Puritan theologian who once wrote a, a sermon or an article called Duty and Charity to the Poor to try to show a connection between service and the gospel because we often have 
objections to service that's not shaped by the gospel. And let me give you three objections to close this sermon, how the gospel pushes back these objections. One common objection to work of service and pursuit of justice and mercy is that oh, I'm too overwhelmed. I can't help anyone. I have nothing to give. And I, can't, I, I, and I can't give anything of myself without burdening myself. And this uh, pastor just talks about that service always entails bearing a burden, even while you bear burdens. You will never have a portion of your life where you're not bearing burdens. And so, therefore, that can't be an excuse when you're sh shaped by the, the gospel not to bear the burdens of others. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens. And when you do that... What does it say? This way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfilling the gospel and the way of Jesus is bearing the burdens of others, even as we are bearing our own burdens, that we take more on under the strength of the Holy Spirit. And when we're able to bear those burdens with one another, even if we think we can't, to God be the glory because he will give us the strength to do so. Another common objection is that, maybe something like this, do I really have to serve someone if they're just kind of doing okay? Like, isn't it better just to wait until, like, their whole life kind of just really becomes a nasty, like, mess, and then I can kind of finally come in there and help? Uh, if, you're if you're listening to an objection like this, and sometimes that's our instinct, it's just like you can kind of see something coming, but like, oh, it's not that bad yet, so I'm just going to wait for it to get worse, and then maybe I'll step up. And uh, again, in the scriptures, that's not the ground for love, especially in the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself is not love your neighbor only when they're desperate for your service. Christ loved us in this way. John 15 says, when Jesus says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so Christ here has an initiating love and service no matter where his disciples are at. And that is the gospel way that we serve people, not when they're desperate, but because they are people that are always in need of service. A final objection that's not often shaped by the gospel is something that sounds like this. Why should I give myself, myself and my time and my resources to somebody who's just going to be ungrateful for it anyways? This is a way of thinking about it. It's like maybe you've leaned in, and this is a common experience. Maybe you've leaned in to help somebody once, and they were a little bit prickly because sometimes hurt people hurt others. And so one of the things that's going to happen often in areas of service is you are going to get hurt often by your friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and maybe those out in the world uh, that are in the fringes of society. If you lean into this, you're probably going to get hurt, and you might not get a thank you for it. But being... Rejecting service because of that, because people are ungrateful or perceived to be ungrateful, is not a gospel motivation. Romans 5.8, to close with this one. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we finally got our act together. Not when we finally were grateful for the gospel of grace to come to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us before we were grateful, before we were deserving, before we even had faith. Christ served us even to the point of death and death on a cross so that sinners who are ungrateful may be forgiven. 
And my hope is that these are the types of frameworks that, that fuel our, our acts of service and our view of justice and our practice of mercy as we seek to be formed by the way of Jesus and love uh, in our daily life and as we practice service with one another. We're going to move again to a time of communion as we do each and every week at Trinity City Church. Uh, before I get there and before the music team comes up, we're going to I got, I got an update for you, and I know the elders have, have told me that they want to commit some time to prayer as well. One of the reasons I shared personally my diagnosis from back in 2019 is I have a new health update to share with all of you. And some of you that have been around for a while might know that uh, I've had some, uh, I keep having PET scans because I'm not out of the five-year kind of mark where my cancer could return. And so my medical team has been monitoring me, and I've had some inflamed lymph nodes for about, about 12 months now. And uh, it wasn't that long ago, a couple weeks ago, that my medical team said, hey, we should do a biopsy and just see what's going on. And there, I got the results recently, and there's some good news and there's some bad news. The good news is, is that I do not have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That was the lymphoma I just mentioned. It was a really aggressive one that I fought three years ago, and this was kind of the thought of the medical team all along, all along because the PET scans wasn't showing um, inflamed lymph nodes that, that would be infected by this because if it were, it would have aggressively spread pretty much throughout my body by now. So it kind of confirmed what the suspicion was, that I do not have diffuse large B cells, so that's really, really good news. The, the big bummer, guys, is that I do have something and it's called follicular lymphoma. So I do have cancer. This lymphoma is different than the other one. It's non-aggressive, and it kind of explains what's been going on with the pets. That it's been kind of sitting there, not getting worse, but also not getting better. And if you were like me and you've never heard of this specific lymphoma, I encourage you to, to Google it and kind of uh, just start to get a framework. Don't go to Reddit, by the way, like maybe like Mayo Clinic and like stuff like that. Like read, read what they have to say about it would be my suggestion. Uh, but the outlook of it is, is optimistic. But the, the, the real like thing that I'm still trying to wrap my mind around is that this cancer is chronic. There's no cure for it. It will never go away. So the way that my medical team and I have been talking about it is that right now, and this is a very common way to manage this type of lymphoma, is through active monitoring, because I could go years without it not really doing anything, uh, and you just keep doing PET scans and you keep doing some things to check up on how it's doing and if it's staying put, if it's spreading, because again, if it does move, it moves really slow. And over time, if the cancer gets fussy, then we'll, try to, then we'll have to beat it back with some form of treatment, which could be in the form of immunotherapy, or it could be chemotherapy. Now, one of the things that's, that's tough about news like this, especially the last, the last time that, that, you know, three years ago when I told you about the initial diagnosis, there's a very, like, it, there's a lot of objectivity to it. It's just like aggressive cancer, like we need to treat it right now, and they have like this big, like, you know, you know, chemo cocktail that I throw at you called R-CHOP that just, just it, sounds, it sounds bad, doesn't it? It's just like, it just beat, like, bad in a good way. It just beats, like, R-CHOP off the top rope right onto your cancer, and that's basically what happened. Like, they beat me up with that thing, and even to this day, praise the Lord, I do not have diffuse large B-cell. This other lymphoma is, is just a tricky little thing. Like, it's just like it just hangs out, and you treat it, 
and it's, it's kind of like a mystery. So there's, it's, it's, it's much more subjective, but the outlook still is really, really good, especially with uh, just uh, advancing cancer research that's happening in new trials daily. And really the, the bottom line of this is, because like sometimes I've, I've, I've told a lot of people over the last couple of weeks as we're trying to get the news out, and sometimes people are just like, they're just, they're just gutted by this. Right, right, and one of the things that's, that's, that I want to make clear to you guys, and I, I know that like many people are gutted by news like this because you hear cancer and you're just like, oh man, like Pastor Brian's going to be taking a dirt nap in the next year, right? And that's kind of what you're thinking, right? But like anybody that's been been through love, with loved ones and cancer, like not every cancer is the same. It's so it's so different every single time, and if you just look at the stats of this. Uh, I'm more, you're more likely uh, to see me decades from now move on to another ministry and somebody else uh, behind this pulpit than you are to see me uh, in a funeral in this church building. That's the more likely scenario. As scary as cancer diagnosis can be, uh, this is not that type of aggressive one that takes you out. It's one of those that, that medical research has been able to manage. And it is a chronic illness, but I've kind of joined, I know, a club of people here that have chronic illnesses, uh, including there is somebody with chronic cancer here that is a survivor. I know many people are asking in specific ways they can help, and that's, again, what's weird about this cancer is that there's really no specific things I need right now. My life feels normal. I'm going about my week-to-week -week life uh, as I usually do, and we're just kind of keeping an eye on things, and I have support from the system of support that I already uh, mentioned in the sermon through friends and family, community group, and uh, my medical team as well. And I'll let you know, like, if there are needs that arise, we will mobilize the care ministry here to let you know how you can specifically care for my family. But right now, it's, we're taken care of, and there's really nothing specific to do other than pray. And with the Covenant members this week, uh, I shared these four prayer requests, so I'll give those uh, requests to you, um, and then I know the elders will be coming up here to pray for me here uh, after that. So here are four ways you can pray uh, for me and my family. Pray for a heightened sense of God's presence in the midst of everyday life, that sweet presence of God that just gets you through anything. Number two, Pray for the Lord to bless my family with the needed time for our faith to be nourished, our laments to be expressed, and our hope to be in the grace that restores all things. Number three, pray for my medical team as they guide me on this journey, and especially pray for medical researchers who are continuously expanding the treatment options for things like follicular lymphoma. And finally, this is a, another big prayer request for me and, and just how uh, God kind of ministers to my family over the years. Pray for wonderful times of laughter that feel like you did an ab workout on the next day. We, it seems like so odd, right, to, to pray for joy in the midst of sorrow for when, when things are just not breaking the way that you had hoped. But like I think about uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 58, where it's kind of mocking death. Oh, death, where's your sting, death? Where's the victory, death, right? And it's just like, it's like this mocking that's happening. And it just seems so irrational. Like, if you're facing something that, that's really bigger than you are and you don't know what to do, like, shouldn't you be terrified? Shouldn't you be sad? And all those things are true. But another thing you should feel 
It's just this untouchable joy in the gospel that nothing, including death, can take it away from you because death has no sting. Death has no victory. And there's a theology of laughter and joy and sorrow that's almost a protest against the principalities and the realities of this world that seem to be always trying to take you out, but you laugh in the face of it because the reality is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ took it out. Brothers, won't you kind of come up here? <laughs> so I was told that they were going to pray for me, not asked if, they, if I wanted prayer. So that's kind of what's happening right here. All right. <laughs>